From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP President April Kapu, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Today, we're joined by nurse practitioner Heather O'Dell, who will share her wealth of knowledge on one of the most important organs in the body. Do you know which one that is? Is it the heart? Is it the brain? No, it's the liver. Heather has committed her career to studying the liver, caring for patients with liver failure, and working in the field of transplant. She'll highlight key symptoms of chronic liver disease and acute liver failure. She'll discuss the NP's role in diagnosing and treating people with liver failure and describe the patient's journey to successful transplant. I'm excited to speak with Heather and learn more about the important role she holds as an NP. Welcome to NP Pulse, Heather. Thank you for having me. I've been so excited to speak with you for so long. I know we've known each other for a very long time, but your expertise is just paramount when we talk about acute and chronic liver failure as well as liver transplant. But first, I wanted to find out a little bit more about you. So can you share a little bit more about your background? Uh, What led you down the pathway to becoming a nurse practitioner? And then maybe a little bit more about what led you down the pathway into liver and liver education and everything that you do as a practitioner today. Sure. It's um, certainly been a non-linear path, um, but some a path I wouldn't change. Um, when I was in college, undergraduate, I, I knew that I wanted to do medicine of some kind. I was actually in a pre-med program at the time. And um, became very close friends with, you know, a family near near school um, that was kind of my family away from home. And um, interestingly, kind of a couple different things happened during that time. One was the father got very sick with liver disease. And we were in Dallas, Texas, so not a place that is devoid of appropriate health care, for, especially for acute issues or specialty issues. And trying to partner with him through that process, there's nobody healthcare-based in their family, to get him the care that he needed was extremely difficult. To get him to the right specialist, to ultimately get him to a transplant center. And I remember through that experience saying, this is what I want to do forever. I want to be a part of making this an easier process to navigate for people with liver disease as my career. And so I knew pretty early on that that's the path I was going to take. At that time, I thought that I wanted to be a physician. And then I, which is obviously a wonderful profession. However, I actually had a couple people talk to me about becoming a nurse practitioner and and perhaps the pros and cons of that pathway. And that is the pathway that I ended up changing to. And I'm really grateful that I did. I've had tremendous opportunities for growth over the years, can contribute in so many different ways. 
but also have some control over my practice that uh, I really appreciate in this particular role. And so getting to partner with part of a multidisciplinary complex specialty team has really been enjoyable for me. Yeah. And so what do you do now? What's, what's your role there now? So I still practice as a nurse practitioner um, within our hepatology and liver transplant programs. Okay. But the majority of my job is an administrator for our abdominal transplant programs. So liver transplant, kidney, pancreas, and our living donor programs, both in liver and kidney transplant. Okay. And now you've done a lot in terms of leadership and moving into that role. I know you did quite a bit throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, but before that, you were already interested in leadership. So tell me your degree. So you are a nurse practitioner. What type of nurse practitioner? Adult. Adult nurse practitioner. And then you went to a master's and healthcare administration program. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so after a couple years of practicing as a nurse practitioner, I found that I was really interested in evidence-based practice, quality improvement, process improvement, our general operational efficiencies, just anything around operations, how we care for patients in obviously an evidence-based way, but also an effective and efficient way. So I knew I wanted to go back to school, but what did that look like for me? So there's lots of options. I could have got my DNP. I could have done an MHA or an MBA, or the particular program I chose was an MMHC program, a master's in healthcare administration, essentially. And I think what that, for me, I actually come from a heavy finance business background in my family. And so perhaps that's what that brought out something in me. But I think that that's where I saw my interests peak. And it was a program that allowed me to continue to work full time. I didn't want to change that. That was I really enjoyed my job. I still enjoy my job. Mm -hmm. And so it was predominantly on weekends and at nights and really gave me that specific education to be more impactful in the administrative operational space and to manage larger and larger now groups of people that work on our transplant teams. It's, it's very interesting. So what made you make your decisions at the time you did? First of all, that very personal story that um, really helped you to see that going down the path of the science of chronic and acute liver failure was very compelling. And then as you decided to be a nurse practitioner and and that really met your goals and what you were seeking in a career, and then certainly to continue to expand upon your leadership skill by going to the MMHC program. And now you're over the liver transplant program, just giving so much to that career to make it more robust. But you've done a lot along the way. And I know we could talk forever. And I just um, have so enjoyed listening to your many uh, presentations and your educational modules on chronic and acute liver failure. So let's talk a little bit about that today. But I just have been so impressed with your leadership, not just in that area, but you also really expanded your leadership skills to help lead us through some of the most trying times in healthcare. And you really helped to lead the organization that we're both from in Nashville through the pandemic and and really establishing vaccination clinics and seeing your transplant patients through really difficult times um, as they were going through and experiencing much of the pandemic. So I just want to thank you 
uh, for that, Heather. It's just been my honor to be able to watch that from afar and be part of you really leading us through so much. So today we're going to talk about liver failure and transplant. So let's start off with just some fascinating facts about the liver. I was thinking about this, and there are lots of very scientific, fascinating facts about the liver, which we'll certainly talk about. But some of the more fun ones to start off is that the liver weighs about as much as an average chihuahua. That's around three pounds. It's the largest solid organ in the body. And the animal equivalent to NASH, fatty liver disease, which we'll talk about today, is actually foie gras. So something people eat and find good is actually a disease process we'll talk a little bit about. One of my favorite facts about the liver is that it can regenerate with greater than 90% of it being removed or damaged in some way. It can still regenerate if that offense to the liver is kind of removed. But the liver plays such an important role in so many processes that our body does on a daily basis. So it plays an important role in our immune factors and resisting infections. It regulates our blood clotting mechanisms. It clears drugs and other poisonous substances from the body. It processes hemoglobin um, for use of its iron content that comes from the liver where it's stored. It clears bilirubin, from red blood cells, um, when that when the liver is damaged, that bilirubin not clearing is actually that yellowing that you see in skin and eyes. And all of those toxins are then excreted out through the feces. They go back into the intestines, and that's how they kind of make their way out. But the, the liver is responsible for a whole lot that our body does every minute. Yeah, so it's, it's very important. I think a lot of times we think about the brain is the most important or the heart is the most important or those kidneys but the liver is very important i think it's very fascinating that it regenerates and has that capability so it's important and certainly don't want to have anything go wrong with our liver but you see a lot of patients that have chronic liver disease so can you share a little bit more about the sequela of events that lead to chronic liver disease. Yeah, so liver disease is way more common than anyone would readily expect. And and it can be kind of sneaky, especially chronic liver disease. So the way that liver disease works is that there's an assault to the liver in some cases, whether that's alcohol, which a lot of people think about, or Hepatitis and other viruses like hepatitis A, B, C, or cytomegalovirus, or fatty liver disease. So certainly metabolic syndromes that can lead to higher density of fat within the liver is an assault to the liver or what we call hepatotoxic. There are also other disease processes that are inherited and then also other processes that are autoimmune processes that can assault the liver. And so that assault to the liver causes inflammation. And so when you see elevations in AST and ALT, what you're seeing is inflammation in the liver. It doesn't really tell you anything about the liver's function. It just says, something's bothering me. And so that inflammation over time leads to scarring. And that scarring, the more that scarring occurs, eventually leads to cirrhosis. And there are four stages of liver disease, stage four being cirrhosis and irreversible. But anything prior to that offers us an opportunity to remove 
whatever is assaulting the liver, that hepatotoxin, and actually regenerate and improve our liver function. And so that's why it's so important to try and identify these hepatotoxins earlier in the liver disease process when we have an opportunity to reverse any liver damage. Okay. Okay. So as a nurse practitioner, and I have a primary care clinic in a community, and I am starting to think that I need to do a uh, work up this patient for liver disease, what, what do I need to do? Yeah. So it can be really tricky. So people can have liver disease, even cirrhosis for years, if not decades with zero symptoms. So I think that there are a few things you can do. Okay. Elevations and transaminases, so that AST and that ALT, again, lead you to say, hmm, something may be affecting their liver. And the tricky part is that sometimes our transaminases bump with just a cold, a general infection. And so always repeating those is super helpful. A couple weeks later, repeating them, they're normalized. Okay. We can all have transient elevations in our transaminases. But if you see elevations on more than one lab test. One of the things I notice is that those can be relatively mild and so not much is done in response because they're mild elevations and so it's not that alarming. However, over time that inflammation, even mild, is causing scarring. So if you're seeing that, certainly check hepatitis, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. Those are good screening tests, even if you're not suspicious. We should be screening our patients in general now. So hepatitis B and C, which are both very treatable with antiviral medication. Okay. And then, you know, there's some role for imaging for ultrasound can give you, ultrasounds of your liver can give you some hint if the liver appears cirrhotic, certainly CT and MRIs can do so. But ultimately, a diagnosis of cirrhosis is made generally by liver biopsy. That's the only way for us to truly know. Trying to find the source of the hepatotoxin is really your whatever's causing that inflammation is usually the goal. And But if it's not obvious, so if it's not hepatitis B, hepatitis C, mm-hmm. or you know that the patient is consuming excessive amounts of alcohol, or they have metabolic syndrome, and it's pretty obvious, which you could also see on imaging if it was NASH. So if it's not obvious and immediately intervenable, like we really need to be referring that patient because the extensive workup that comes for us to try and find that source of liver disease and intervene becomes particularly nuanced given a patient's condition. But If you're wanting to know if the patient has liver dysfunction, Mm -hmm. so the two questions are, we have liver inflammation, which causes scarring, but is the liver not functioning correctly? We're really looking at INR, how are they clotting? We're looking at their albumin, which can be very low. These patients become malnourished. Their bilirubin can often be elevated. Sodium can be low. These patients can often get kidney dysfunction associated Mm -hmm. with their liver dysfunction. So those are all kinds of pieces of the puzzle that make us say, hmm, something doesn't feel right. Right. I need to escalate this situation. So this is good. This is really, really helpful. So you mentioned NASH. What, what, What is that? So fatty liver disease. So those fatty deposits within your liver causes that same inflammation and scarring over time and is becoming is actually... For many years, hepatitis C was, and certainly when I started, hepatitis C was our number one cause of 
liver dysfunction, cirrhosis, and ultimately transplant. I mean, I just was seeing this day in and day out. And then several years later, we had the advent of direct-acting antiviral medication, which cures hep C, which is no one even believed that it was true when it came out, which is fascinating. But what we found as that's kind of left the stage, Mm -hmm. we're finding a rapid increase in liver disease and cirrhosis caused by fatty liver disease or NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis of the liver, which can be tricky to diagnose because alcoholic liver disease also causes can cause fat deposits within the liver. So can be particularly challenging. However, what we are seeing is that's really the front runner in our kind of taking the lead on our causes of liver disease now. So similar presentations, two different causes. It sounds like chronic liver disease, very insidious, it's it's slow, it's the scarring that you describe. Great points about those initial tests to really get you thinking, you know, is this something that needs to go for further workup? But there's also acute assault to the liver. So what's the difference there? Yeah, so there's definitely some overlap. So if we're thinking about chronic liver disease, as you were saying, it is slow. It happens over time. So these symptoms develop very slowly. We'll see hepatic encephalopathy or confusion develop slowly, maybe jaundice and itching that kind of develop slowly, swelling in their feet or in their belly, known um, as ascites. So okay. these things will develop slowly over time. And by the time they develop, honestly, cirrhosis is usually established and we're talking about decompensation of cirrhosis. In acute liver disease, these symptoms develop rapidly. Okay. And the body learns to tolerate certain things over time, right? When it's just a little bit worse and a little bit worse, your body tries to equilibrate and find a new normal and find a new normal. But in in acute liver disease, that's not possible. So the damage and the acuity and urgency of acute liver disease is much higher. So what we often see is acute liver disease can really be an onset within 24 to 48 hours, up to a few weeks, generally defined as less than 12 weeks. So the most common cause is an overdose of acetaminophen. And whether that is intentional or not, we have certainly seen unintentional chronic use of acetaminophen build up over time and it did tip someone over the edge. That obviously requires referral to an emergency room as soon as possible. Really any acute liver disease does. We'll see hepatitis A and B can cause acute flares, autoimmune disease, other drugs, Mm -hmm. other medications. We have unfortunately more than once transplanted patients with acute liver failure for combinations of herbal supplements they were taking. So what you'll see in those patients, rapid onset of jaundice is uh, one marker, massive liver inflammation. So you'll see transaminases in the thousands or tens of thousands, just remarkably high. You can see elevations in an INR, really abrupt confusion. And one of the risks in acute liver failure patients we're really worried about, that encephalopathy and confusion in an acute liver failure actually increases the pressure in their brain much more quickly and can cause herniation. And so we have to get those patients Mm -hmm. admitted, stabilized in an ICU and monitored as soon as possible. Okay. Any, anybody experience pain with any of this flank pain, anything like that? 
Oh, sure. They, they can. They certainly can. Both chronic and acute liver failure patients can. Mm-hmm. It's just not always obvious, but a probably more common in acute patients. Okay. Great question. Yeah, very interesting. And so um, when you, let's talk about the clotting factors for just a moment. So you said the INR might be elevated. What happens to your platelets, things like that? Any, any changes you'll see there? Yeah, that's a great question. So platelets will often, especially in chronic liver disease, will be reduced. Your spleen is generally hoarding your platelets, having to do with the systemic portal hypertension that's occurring in your body. So as your liver gets scarred, gets very hard, pinches down on those blood vessels. It's like a garden hose. You're trying to pinch off a garden hose. That pressure is being pushed back at a higher rate. And so mm-hmm. blood actually can kind of get pushed back into the spleen and your spleen begins hoarding your platelets. So you'll often see a really low platelet count. You'll also see varices within the esophagus and other parts of the body, varices that can rupture and bleed. So vomiting of blood, blood in the stool, whether bright red or kind of coffee grounds can both be indicators, especially in patients we know have cirrhosis, we're screening them with endoscopy at least once a year. Okay. Now, a lot of the labs, the initial labs are similar. Any additional diagnostics or labs that we really need to talk about here? Or do we go on to CT, MRI, those types of things? In an acute liver failure patient? Mm-hmm. You know, things like hepatitis A can cause acute liver failure, but doesn't cause chronic liver failure. And so you can certainly test hep A, especially if you're having other GI type symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. So that's something you can certainly do. We will almost always do imaging, but it won't particularly help in the immediate presentation, if that makes sense. Often the liver may look normal. It may look shrunken. It's it's not always consistent, okay. which can be a little bit challenging. Okay. So let's just say patient comes in um, to the emergency room. They have everything that looks like acute liver failure. What happens then? Yeah. They generally get transplanted to or get moved to a liver transplant center. Okay. So they'll get admitted and, and transferred. Our hope is obviously that a patient's acute liver failure can stabilize. So they're generally admitted to the ICU and that, and that's the goal. But we often find that those patients get transferred to liver transplant centers because liver transplant centers by their nature have hepatologists. So they have um, services where a liver specialist is on at all times. And the thing with acute liver failure is the balance between recovery and liver transplant is a hair fine line. And so I think that's What's really important is trying to get that patient to the ultimate disposition that can help them if they're not obviously immediately recovering. So that comes to where you're so, I mean, your expertise is certainly in acute and chronic liver failure, but transplant, what's the workup for transplant? Yeah, goodness. The workup for transplant is, it's a lot. Getting there is honestly the biggest hurdle, getting to the point of evaluation because that liver disease is very sneaky. Someone's labs may be normal. They may be asymptomatic. And so getting to the point where we actually recognize that they have chronic liver disease or acute, that usually happens through an inpatient pathway, but from an outpatient pathway, that chronic liver disease, we've already come quite a long way. So when a patient gets referred to us from a hepatology perspective, we just do Mm -hmm. complete workup. Is there anything else we can be doing to medically manage this patient? Is there a source that we haven't identified? There are a lot of rare 
tricky liver diseases that will, even though our bucket catches 80% of them, there's still some that can be a little bit harder to define. But then when they get to the point, and generally their MELD is over 15, so the model for end-stage liver disease is a calculation of many of those blood tests we discussed earlier that correlates with the percentage mortality in the next 90 days. So in a patient with liver disease, we take those labs, we push them in this calculation, and it gives us a number Mm -hmm. up to 40. It can go over 40, but essentially it's capped. Anything over 40, we call 40. And that correlates with a mortality rate. So someone in the high 30s has a 90% mortality rate in the next 90 days. Someone with a MELD of 15 has maybe 20-some percent, much lower mortality rate in the next 90 days, but clearly a high enough risk that we need to be considering transplant as an option. Because once these patients have established cirrhosis, they have these episodes of decompensation. So those bleeding varices we talked about, volume overload in their belly, that ascites we talked about that will never go away, irretractable itching that will never go away. So these symptoms that can be quite miserable and life-threatening, they have risk for infections in their belly with spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So these types of decompensation, once they happen once, are likely going to happen again and at increased frequency. And so when we move towards a liver transplant evaluation, we are doing a full workup of their liver disease. What, how is that going to affect them post-transplant? What is their physical status? That's really important. You know, historically, okay. there's been a lot of misunderstandings around protein ingestion in patients with liver disease and that once they were told to take protein-restricted diets, which we by no means suggest now. It's actually really important for them to have a high-protein diet. We want them to stay as physically active, and and it's difficult for them to stay healthy in terms of their nutritional status. And so we push high-protein, low-sodium to help with that fluid retention. We look at their heart. We look at their lungs. We look at how not only how would they do in an operation, obviously, transplant is a big operation and that's important. But what's most important is what is their success post-transplant? We are going to put an organ in them. And when there's a finite number of organs, how do we make sure that that is going to be successful for that patient and a good steward of that organ? And so we're looking at what's their long-term infection risk Do they have any active malignancy? They'll be put on immunosuppression post-transplant, which would worsen any type of malignancy. So we're looking at that. And we take all of that into consideration. And that goes to what's called a, a multidisciplinary committee. And there are social workers, finance representatives, physicians, surgeons, nurse practitioners, nurses, mm-hmm. among psychiatrists, social workers, just pharmacists. It's this beautiful, honestly, multidisciplinary team that really provides comprehensive care for these patients to say, do we think this is the best treatment option for this patient? And so when that evaluation is complete and that committee meets and has that discussion, if we believe that that's the best treatment option for the patient, that's when they move forward onto the waiting list. Okay. And how common is liver transplant just in in respect to the other organs? So we do about 600 transplants a year collectively in our transplant center. About half of those are kidneys. Okay. And then about 130 are liver transplants, which is a relatively high volume across the country. And then heart and lung make up the other kind of uh, 170-ish 
that that we do here. It's relatively common. We are certainly higher volume. We live in a particular area of the country that pulls from a greater mileage radius than perhaps some other transplant centers. And so I think that contributes to, to the high volume here. And then also we have higher rates of NASH and certain liver diseases in this particular area. Wow, this is so fascinating. So just uh, out of curiosity, have you ever gone with the team to harvest the liver and transport it back and all of that? Absolutely. I think that even if it's not part of your job, Mm -hmm. I think that any of these opportunities are really amazing to help shape your practice and just general understanding of, in my case, the world of liver transplant. And so, yes, I have flown out with our team to do organ procurement, which is obviously a very emotional and fascinating process. I think our organ procurement groups, our our OPOs, organ procurement organizations, they are the donor's advocates. So they manage donor organs. And the way that they manage this process is really amazing. And so in the operating room, when we're procuring organs, we'll often hear letters read from family members, take a moment of silence. We'll learn about that particular individual and just a really way to honor them as a donor and what they're doing in in saving these lives and impacting so many people. And donor procurement requires so many team members. There's probably 10, 12 people in the room. Sometimes we're fortunate enough that the donor is local. Sometimes we have to fly out. And depending on the acuity of the patient getting transplanted, so someone with acute liver disease, which we can call status 1A if they get listed, they pull from the entire country. So we could fly anywhere to get an organ for that patient. And then when we come back, the transplant itself has already started. So when that donor procuring team Mm -hmm. identifies that organ as viable, when they're getting it, recipient team is back at our hospital. They've already begun the hepatectomy and taking out that old liver. So by the time the donor organ gets there, the goal is it should be going right in. We want to minimize the time that that organ is on ice. And one of the most impactful things to me from watching that whole process, you know, I care for these patients on an outpatient basis generally. And patients would always complain of a lot of back pain and, you know, flank and rib pain. I was like, yeah, I don't know. Everybody has that. And, and it's a big operation, not super surprising, right? And then when I was in the operating room looking at the retractor that they used, I was just mortified. I thought, oh, my goodness, of course. This is huge. This is a big piece of equipment. This must be uncomfortable. And so putting those pieces together, realizing, like, that's exactly why. Mm-hmm these patients feel this particular way or have this particular experience. And I will never forget that because before that, I just, it was just part of their healing process. It was known to be normal, but now I understand the why behind it. And watching the actual operation, having the clamps come off and the liver get, you know, full of blood and turn bright red, it's just, I mean, it's fascinating. And I still think to this day how lucky I am to be a part of this process for patients. Wow, I could talk to you all day about uh, the liver. It is a fascinating organ. And uh, for our audience that is listening today, do you have any big things that stand out to you in terms of resources for more information? 
Yeah, so there's lots of good resources out there, whether it's the Liver Foundation, the ALF, there is UNOS can help. There's, they have lots of tools on their website about calculating MELD scores and identifying transplant candidates and transplant statistics. And then there are a lot of great academic medical centers. Johns Hopkins and the Mayo Clinic have wonderful resources just readily available online that are both very helpful from a provider perspective, but also presented in ways that can be helpful in educating your patients. So lots of resources out there. And the American Association of Liver Disease, AASLD, is an amazing resource. Their website is very well organized in terms of their resources and just manuals, essentially, on how to care for patients in certain contexts. So lots of stuff out there that's really helpful. And this has been really helpful. And like I said, I've so enjoyed your lectures before, your sessions at conferences. You are just so great in the way you explain things. It makes it so easy to understand a very complex disease and uh, certainly a very important, very fascinating organ, the liver. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience today? I think the biggest thing for me would be to say, trust your instincts. You know, I think, I guess I can only speak for our center, but we're always happy to see a patient. And I know it can be challenging often getting patients into specialists, but I would say trust your instinct and advocate for your patient, especially in the world of liver disease. Sometimes it's easy to just continue to monitor because it doesn't seem particularly overt at the time. So I think that's important. You know, I think oftentimes what we'll see, and I should have mentioned this earlier, you'll see patients maybe have a simp- what you think is a simple surgical procedure, like a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, and then they'll become really sick right after. They'll have those liver disease symptoms, and you're kind of confused why. And so patients with cirrhosis, that sneaky cirrhosis that no one knew because the labs were normal, they were asymptomatic, they can often decompensate after surgical operations. So just keeping that in the back of your mind, if you have a patient that has a surgical operation that comes to you a couple weeks later, and it's just like, gosh, I just keep feeling worse. I'm not feeling better. This doesn't make sense. That's always a differential to keep in the back of your mind. Do they have any risk factors for liver disease? Should I do a workup? And you Usually when you start running those blood tests in those particular patients, you would see abnormalities that would trigger you to say, ah, this is what we need to be following. So I love that. Trust your instincts. Um, We talked a lot about the assessment, the labs, the diagnostics, and so forth, the signs and symptoms. But I think that's the beauty of being a nurse practitioner. And I'm so grateful you chose to be a nurse practitioner all those years ago. Is one of the beauties is that we listen. And we really listen to everything that's going on with the patient. Because at any moment, they could tell you something that could be a key clue uh, to why they're experiencing um, these signs and symptoms and start you really your wheels turning in terms of could this possibly be liver disease thank you so much Heather it's been a joy to speak with you today thank you for joining us we would love to have you on our podcast again one day thank you so much thank you for joining us Heather and thank you to all who are listening If you're treating patients with hepatitis A or C, be sure to download the free patient education tools that are available on aanp.org in the Infectious Diseases section. For those interested in learning more about the liver and liver disease treatment, be sure to attend, either in person or on demand, the 2023 AANP National Conference, June 20th through 25th 
in New Orleans. There, you can select sessions on caring for patients with cirrhosis, interpreting abnormal liver labs, understanding liver disease, drug-induced liver injury, and so much more. Thank you for listening to NP Pulse. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And as always, be kind, be safe, be effective, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. Thank <laughs> you.